Welcome to Award Winners. I'm your co-host, John, joined by David. I didn't burn a cross. This is our night at the Oscars, where we watch Oscar-winning movies while enjoying Oscar Award Wieners. It's a celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. In this episode, we discuss the whodunit thriller and the heat of the night, winner of the 1967 Oscar for Best Picture. David and John proudly present to you the celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. It's a war cleaners. It's a war cleaners. It's a war going on you're right john i do not burn crosses there you go yeah thank you for recognizing that never would (laughs) it's the best thing i could come up with for a movie all about racism in the south what's going on with me you know just the same thing as everyone sort of worried about the delta variant a little bit i am vaccinated so i'm not extremely worried but you know i have empathy for people who uh might get sick I saw up in your neck of the woods, they're going to start requiring showing vaccination proof to do a lot of things, eat out, go places. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. I I have my card in my wallet. That's where they fucked up. It is not a wallet sized card. No, it's not. Not at all. It is. It should have made it a wallet sized card. It would have made everyone's life easier. (laughs) It doesn't fit in my wallet. I have a picture of it on my phone. Does that count? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or people are just getting really elaborate with how they show it. They're going to have like a cigarette holder for it. <laughs> like a gold plated cigarette holder. I want like a wallet with like a little badge in it that I can flip out and flash at people like I'm special. I'm a U.S. Marshal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait to go out and get New York pizza. <laughs> I know this is off topic, but do you know the secret of the dollar, dollar slices? Is that they use bad ingredients for everything. Like two negatives equal a positive. Plenty of nights where I'm like, I gotta get that dollar slice. And I'm eating it and I'm like, if I was sober, this would be terrible. (laughs) But I'm not. (laughs) What's going on with you? Speaking of totally random things, I bought a pair of weightlifting shoes. It makes a world of difference. I don't know why I didn't do this 10 years ago. (laughs) Are they just extra flat? I don't understand. Yeah, basically they're just really flat shoes that provide a lot of stability so that if you're doing deadlifts squats whatever they provide the stability and the running shoes i have are foamy they have a little bit of bounce and spring to them not so stable (laughs) (laughs) like i've like tweaked this and that i'm like why the f did i not just buy these shoes 10 years ago what was i thinking yeah you missed your chance on the olympics (laughs) do you feel like you watch the olympics because you're supposed to no, I like a couple sports. I really do like the gymnastics. I was into swimming for a little bit. Sometimes I watch some of the wrestling. I don't sit down and watch it straight through. I catch the highlights. A sport that I was sort of into this year was the three-on-three basketball. Oh, I did hear about that. I haven't watched any of the Olympics. Yet. It's a lot of fun to watch because it's very fast. Sarah was into the women's softball. Uh, she tried out for the Olympics. She was a pitcher a college pitcher mm-hmm. did not make the team but that's okay so she's really into it yeah do you watch it because this sort of just a thing to talk about i don't watch it at all actually it impacts me not at all for four years and then it happens and then my life continues on okay if you if you had to be an olympic athlete what sport would you want to do competitive eating i mean i don't know are you gonna beat what's his name uh joey, joey chestnut, chestnut? <laughs> 
he's, <laughs> he's, he's what a, I'm aiming for. Have a short life, but you'll be uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be in the annals of history. Oh, uh, what would I want to do? That's that's a cr- that's crazy. I don't really know. Pole vaulting. I can see you as a pole vaulter, Dave. Pole vaulting would be fun, though. In my heart of hearts, I've always wanted to be good at volleyball. Even, <laughs> but <laughs> bikini beach volleyball for men. And I would definitely not shave. Hair everywhere. Why would you? Yeah, that's part of the allure. <laughs> I saw in Olympic news, I think yesterday, there's like some kind of shooting event that's happening. Someone got distracted and shot their opponent's target <laughs> accidentally. Like, I don't know what happened to the match, but I was like, that is awesome. Oh, <laughs> man, what a rules kerfuffle. <laughs> well, if, it happens to, if it happens to Olympians, like, it could happen to randos, too. Oops. He's like, a button came undone on my jacket, and I shot my opponent's target instead. I'm like, amazing. And I don't know how it got scored, but... Restart. Yeah, let's let's move into some, some movie discussion, John. I saw two movies I want to talk about. Okay. The first is Pig, and this is Nick Cage's new movie. I went into, went into this movie thinking it was Cage's version of John Wick. This guy's pig is stolen, and he has to track it down. I was completely wrong. This is a 100% serious role by nick cage it is my favorite movie of the year so far it is very very good nick cage hits it out of the park and i think this is going to be the resurgence of serious nick cage the cage yeah yeah or nick-a-sans nick Assance, i think okay cage Assance is hard to say <laughs> okay but i would recommend everyone go check it out it, it dropped on vod recently just very soulful gut-wrenching drama really good and the other one is the green knight starring dev patel gawain which is arthur's nephew has to go find the green knight it's also very good however it is not a movie for people who like really fast plots this movie's two hours it's very languid it has a little bit of dna with mandy and like that atmospheric tone I like it. Critics are loving it. It's really mixed on um, audience scores, though. I thought about seeing that. My understanding of it is it's very visually impressive, and the acting is very well done. I like Def Patel. I am looking forward to seeing it probably in a month or whatever it comes out on video, on demand. Yeah, yeah. It's very subjective. You're going to walk out of that, and you and I could have conversations about what we think really happened, which I find really cool. What I think is a detractor for this film is that its first trailer was awesome and made it look like it was going to be somewhat of an action movie. And I think that set the wrong tone because this is not an action movie. It is a slow, slow burn. And that's why I want to watch it at home so that if I feel like I want to do something else, I can pause it and come back later. Uh, Have you seen anything interesting? You watched it too. I mean, we saw Black Widow. Eh. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Florence Pugh is good. I watched Bo Burnham's Inside, and I like that a lot, actually. That's on Netflix. It's kind of a collection of loosely associated music videos that he made in quarantine. The songs are really catchy and has some really good, thoughtful moments and great camera work. Did you have a chance to watch that one, Dave? No, I have not. It can be pretty heavy, and I think we're about to go back into lockdown. So There's a high chance, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we watched He-Man. So I think we had opposing opinions here. What did you think? I thought it was okay. I did feel like it was a little bit of a bait and switch. I don't want to get into it more because I don't want to spoil it. The animation is very good. It looks good. Scripts are not great. 
Like there's some stuff in there. I'm like, you just got through editing. Ooh. Yeah. That's like how the original He-Man was. And it, a lot of it's riffing on that. So I liked it for that reason, actually. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think Tila had a line that He-Man's comebacks were like a 1950s teenager who doesn't get out much. <laughs> and I was like, that's so good. <laughs> He's uh, like, ha ha Skeletor. And he knocks him in the water. You're all wet. <laughs> you're all wet. It's <laughs> true. Like, I was like, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably finish it. I'm saying that we'll watch the part two whenever that drops. I'll get to it, but I'm not going to rush out to do it. Thanks to man at arms. You're all wet Skeletor. So we watched In the Heat of the Night. Dave, how would you describe this movie? I would say it's about a black detective from Philadelphia and a Southern police chief who work together to solve a small town murder. Not much more than that. Along the way, they learn to be friends. Yeah, I'd say the black detective gets coerced into helping this police chief. I guess we're just going to get right into this. I, I didn't think this is what the movie was about when we signed up for this. What did you think the movie was about? <laughs> yeah, I knew there was a murder involved and I knew they worked together, but I thought that Virgil, and he's the main character of the movie, was working with the chief to, chief to clear his name. So that just shows how little I knew about this movie. <laughs> we should say why we're doing this before we jump into it. Yes, we should. Actually, I will let you do that. Because hopefully you have that note somewhere. I don't have it it in front of me. (laughs) Uh, So we're doing this because this was Lisa's pick. Lisa won our Oscar ballot challenge, beating me, by the way. Good job, Lisa. (laughs) I was in second. So she said that she shares a birthday with Sidney Poitier and that she generally likes this movie. So we'll dedicate this episode to the winner, Lisa. Anyone else who wants a movie, you can write into us and request it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a short list. We are almost done. Yeah, you can actually just look at our website and see which movies we still have to do. Let's jump into some movie facts, basic rundown with this movie. So it was released August 2nd, 1967. Its runtime is 109 minutes, so sub two hours, so I love that. Uh, A budget of $2 million, and it made $243 million. Their director was Norman Jewison. He's done several other movies that you've heard of. Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition! Uh, the Cincinnati Kid, which is about a gambler. Moonstruck. Cage is all over this podcast, John. Rollerball, a movie that I can't remember, but I know it's a weird sci-fi game that had a remake that was terrible. And The Hurricane. So The Hurricane, Will Smith. So the one thing to know about this director is that he wanted to make films with a social impact, which is why he did this movie. The movie is based on a book by John Ball. Uh, Some things to know about him. Uh, There's like nine or ten Virgil Tibbs books. And uh, he was a nudist. So that's all I got. (laughs) Not Virgil Tibbs. No, no, no. John Ball was the nudist. John Ball. Virgil Tibbs. I haven't read the books, but I don't think he's a nudist. No. Uh, You know, the the books are actually kind of short. I looked up the, the length and it was like, 150 pages for this book so like a typical book's gonna be like 280 300 pages so it's short 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 novel the plot's not that complex so it kind of makes sense yeah i i yeah i I totally get that so this movie went up against for the best picture nom guess who's coming to dinner bonnie and clyde dr doolittle and the graduate john have you seen any of these movies i think i've seen all of them although i am not sure i've seen 
that Dr. Doolittle. Okay, I have seen all of these, and I watched them within the last week, so I can dig into these, and we can actually talk about this. Right off the bat, Dr. Doolittle is trash. It does not deserve to be on this list. That movie is so bad that halfway through, I started fast-forwarding it. What's surprising is that Rex Harrison can't sing, and he's in a musical. Uh, Really, really horrible. What's your thought on The Graduate? On The Graduate. So that one I haven't actually seen in a couple years. I want to know what is the message of the graduate? So it's like, don't screw around with the neighborhood mom because you could end up dating her daughter at some future point. It's a toxic message. Like the idea is like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I am going to find someone to fill that void instead of being okay with myself. I also think that's a bad movie. And I, I that's probably sacrosanct, but I do not like it. I think it's slow and weird with some awkward messaging. Uh, And the main character is incredibly unlikable. (laughs) The one thing that I did want to note about that movie, though, is that Anne Bancroft, the mother in that movie, was 35 when they filmed it. So she probably didn't have an 18-year-old? Probably not. I mean, she probably was playing an older woman, but I was just sort of blown away. I was like, you're casting a 35-year-old as, like, what, early 50s? I am not a huge fan of that. I did really like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and I didn't watch Bonnie and Clyde this week, but I've watched it previously in the last year, and I do like that movie, though I'm going to call out that the music is wild. Not my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I watched Bonnie and Clyde because I don't think I'd seen that one before. I'm not into it. I don't really like What's-His-Face's movies. Warren Betty. I don't really like his movies generally. I feel like we watched Reds and something else, and I'm just kind of like, his stuff isn't for me. Yeah, but you love Dick Tracy. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever seen that, actually. So maybe we should watch that. Uh, I bet it looks great. I don't know anything else about it, though. I'm going to rank these since I've seen them all, if you don't mind. Sure. In the Heat of the Night, number one. Bonnie and Clyde, number two. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, number three. The Graduate, number four. And Dr. Doolittle, way down the bottom, number five. There was one movie i want to mention general consensus is in cold blood was snubbed for this year i heard it's good haven't seen it but there's like five of these movies (laughs) so in terms of in the heat of the night just some things to note it was nominated for seven academy awards it won five it won best picture best actor best screenplay based on material from another medium best editing and best sound Sidney Poitier was not nominated for Best Actor. Instead, that went to Rod Steiger. Most people think he split the vote because he was both in this movie and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And he was nominated for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? No, he wasn't nominated for either. I see. Interesting. How do you feel about him as an actor? I like him a lot. I think his strongest stuff is his when he's earlier on. Just now getting to it, right? I'm just learning about it. He feels like a stage actor. When he and Catherine Hepburn are together, it just makes me laugh because they have this like style of overacting and like <laughs> you just throw them together. You're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, get it done. <laughs> anyway, I generally like him. So the top grossing movies for 1967, The Graduate, The Jungle Book. And I put this on here because I thought it was strange, but Gone with the Wind re-release was number three that year. Is that like the special edition where they touched up the special effects and added some digital Jawas? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say they put walkie-talkies into everyone's hands, but you know, <laughs> digital Jawas work too. Um, yep. But that kind of just shows like how far we've gone because 
people just couldn't rush out and see movies in the past. Like if it came out in the theater again, you went and saw it. It's either that or you waited for it to come on TV once a year and like highlighted it in your TV guide. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't want to do I've Gone the Wind. It's already like four hours long. Could you imagine watching it eight hours? home movie though, because it, like, would you, I can't imagine sitting through that in the theater. Well, it would be a really long time and lots of commercials. It would take literally all day to get through. <laughs> yeah. Other films that came out this year, Cool Hand Luke, which I've seen and like, The Dirty Dozen, which I have seen but don't remember, and Valley of the Dolls, which I have not seen. Um, have you any opinion on those? I like Paul Newman's stuff at the at era in his life. And then The Dirty Dozen, doesn't that have like... Everybody. Jim Brown or someone <laughs> yes, in it? Yeah, it has everybody. Everybody. <laughs> I remember, I think my dad liked The Dirty Dozen. It's a World War II commandos kind of movie. It's just for fun, really. Let's uh, let's get into the red carpet. Okay, so if you're a first-time listener, you should know that we eat movie-themed hot dogs while watching these movies. David, how's your dog dressed on the red carpet this evening? Poorly, John. I bungled it. I made such a bad decision. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, tell me more. Uh, I made a mini hot dog pie, and it's just a recipe that you can find. That doesn't sound terrible, but tell me more. Okay, so it is essentially cut-up hot dogs, baked beans, and Velveeta that you heat up to it congeals and mixes together and then you put american cheese slices on top of that and stick it under the broiler i mean does it go in some kind of crust of some kind no like a pastry crust no. uh-uh so what makes it a pie that it's in a pie tin pie pie thing what that's like a casserole being a pie because it's cooked in a dish that doesn't make sense look i'm just telling you what the name of it was here's the thing i would not make this recipe I, i'm usually all for doing this weird stuff but it is not good it's a lot i mean if i was going to redo it i would do a ton of tweaking and have to add just a crap ton of veggies or something because i felt like uh i had a lead stomach afterwards <laughs> a little yeah. coffee in the morning and you'd be in the bathroom for an hour <laughs> i just want to be at work are you kidding me <laughs> see you see you at five when i come out <laughs> Hey, that's the best use of your time, pooping on the job. That's true. Make that money. Uh, what did you make? I went very simple. I was trying to find recipes for a Southern-style hot dog. Like, how do they make a, a hot dog in the South? Do they put you know any special toppings on it, things like that? One thing I came across was people putting potato chips on their hot dogs. My girlfriend was out of town visiting a relative, and she took the car. So I was <laughs> reliant on food to be delivered to me through grocery delivery. I got some barbecue potato chips and put them on top of the hot dog. I wanted to find some like southern cell coleslaw, but I could not find that for delivery anyways. Gotta say, not a huge fan of it. I thought the texture would be kind of nice, a little crunch in your hot dog. I don't really like that, turns out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Screwed this all up. Ooh, yeah. bad week for us. <laughs> the potato chips are better without the hot dog. Maybe the coleslaw would have helped even some of that out, but I was not a huge fan. I just will eat them separate moving forward. I am surprised neither of us tried to do a hot dog that was spicy, like for the heat element of the movie. What would you have done, Dave? Like what hot toppings would you have put on there? We've already done, like, the spicy hot dogs. Um, We're running out of hot dog themes. We've done 60-something hot dogs, which would actually be something like 120 hot dogs if we've each done 
a different one. <laughs> I think I've repeated it at least once. Yeah, um, it's, <laughs> it's getting, getting harder. harder. We're, we're scraping the bottom of the hot dog barrel. <laughs> oh, the, we're the just hot like hot dog water. water and that old <laughs> hot dog that's been in there too long. Yeah, I, I don't know. It'd probably just be some type of barbecue hot dog with coleslaw on it, like you said. Like I think the coleslaw is a really good idea. I just had to get it. I said, oh, we'll this for Gone with the Wind when we do this, but I saw that pulled pork on a hot dog with potato chips on top of that is actually another Southern style hot dog. I love Southern cooking, but let me tell you, cuts 30 years off your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and adds 30 pounds. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the actors in this movie. Sidney Poitier plays Virgil Tibbs, and you might know him from movies such as The Defiant Ones, which was nominated for Best Picture and Porgy and Bess. He's in Sneakers, a movie that I bring up every chance we get. <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh, so as of this recording, he is still alive. Uh, I believe that makes him the oldest living Best Actor winner. He is a Bohemian American. He's retired. He's done film. He's, he's been a director from 1997 to 2007. He was the Bohemian Ambassador to Japan give you some background on that so he was unexpectedly born in miami uh, which made him a u.s citizen and then in 2009 he was awarded the presidential medal of freedom and this is the best story i found about him he lied about his age to join the army so he joined at 16 but then feigned insanity to obtain a discharge after nine months in the service yeah i believe this was during one of the world world war ii yeah i mean i can't imagine being a black man in world war ii a 16 year old black man yeah like, it's still a very young age. What I would say about him, he is extremely well-respected. So he, he is a heavy hitter and comes to act. Nope, I think, thank you. <laughs> I mean, he's got a style to him that says to me kind of stage acting. I personally think it's overacting, given this movie and also Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So I'm not really a fan of his acting style. Yeah, he comes from the stage, so I understand why you would say that. Okay, so next up is Rod Steiger, and he plays Chief Bill Gillespie. You might know him from such movies as On the Waterfront, which we'll be covering, The Pawn Broker, which he says is his best movie, Dr. Zhivago, which we will not be covering, but people love. We watched it. I watched it. it was, I have not. It was up for Best Picture against something else that we watched already. It's very long. <laughs> uh, Patton, again, we'll be watching that one. Yep. Uh, and then the Amityville Horror, which is a huge hole in my horror knowledge, and I'm pretty caught up on horror. Uh, things you need to know about him. So after he had open heart surgery in 1979, he had clinical depression and health problems. During the 80s, this really affected his career, and it led him to do a lot of B-movies and low-budget movies, independent productions, and TV miniseries. He later said that he regretted that and wished he had done more films. Steiger was outspoken on McCarthyism. He was particularly critical of Charlton Heston and his stance on weapons, and they publicly feuded. And Steiger referred to uh, Heston as America's favorite fascist. <laughs> Good for him. So Gossam columnist Luella Parsons hailed him as the screen's number one bad man. It's the guy that everyone wanted to see on screen as a bad guy so they could hate him. From my reading, it, it seems that he was really scared of failure. And so he channeled that into his acting by over-preparing for roles. He would do things like obsessively change dialogue. At times, that would really anger fellow actors. It seems to me when I was doing my research that actors either loved working with Steiger 
or they hated working the stagger. There was no in-between. I heard something similar. Now, John, let's put this movie in the historical context. The Oscar ceremony was held in 1968 for this movie. It was delayed several days because Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. The Civil Rights Act had been passed several years earlier, but not particularly enforced going to the South as a black person would have been very uncomfortable. In fact, in this movie, it's all filmed in Illinois because Sidney Poitier was like, I'm not going to the South. I don't want to deal with this. They actually asked him to go to Tennessee to film the scenes at the cotton plantation. And even there, he got a pretty hostile reception in town. There was this other interesting anecdote I heard. So the director happened to meet Bobby Kennedy, who was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, because both their kids were hurt in a ski race. So while they were in the waiting room of the hospital, he started talking about in the heat of the night. And Kennedy said to Jewison, you know, Norman, timing is everything in politics, in art, in life itself. This could be a very important movie. I would very much agree with that statement. I think this movie came out at the right time, captured people's attention, and won Best Picture as a result. Other things of note here, this movie was considered to be a big risk for the white actors. So listening to the director talk, he felt like they were just being good citizens because they needed to tell these stories and hopefully change people's opinions. He'd probably be what we call an activist today. They didn't really have a term for that. That sort of sets the tone, I think, for this movie. Would they have called him an upstart, the director? A young whippersnapper? (laughs) uh, I mean, they probably would have called him a hippie communist. Yeah. Thanks, Charlton Heston. Which is interesting. Charlton Heston was a big believer in uh, equality and race relations, too, but also a gun nut. People are multifaceted. Yep. Let's dive into this movie. The movie takes place in Sparta, a small town in Mississippi. Late at night, Officer Sam Woods is on duty. He has a meal at a local diner, and he starts his patrol. Along the way, he stops his car outside a house to watch a young woman named Dolores Purdy walk around naked with the lights on. Shortly after, he discovers a dead body. John, what were you thinking at this point? I was thinking I didn't remember seeing a naked woman in this movie the first time I saw it, and I guess we don't, so... (laughs) This woman, like she's naked, but they had to do all these things for censorship reasons to cover up her bits. They still felt like they they made it sexy because at the end of it, she kind of touches this bottle of Coke she's drinking in between her breasts. And they just felt that was a very sensual moment. If you haven't seen this before, you're like, what is this perv cop doing creeping (laughs) on this woman in this house? And then this woman basically stares him down because she knows he's there and seems to be fine with it. In the context of the day, I was like, what is happening here? First, at the very beginning of the film, there was a diner owner who's just messing with this cop. And in the context of the day, I'm like, yeah, screw with this dude. (laughs) And then in this scene, I was like, this is really creepy. Why is this dude purposely spying on some woman? So it's not a great start. I also knew, just because this is the way I think, that that woman would probably play a prominent role. You would hope she isn't a red herring introduced for no reason at all. You know, sometimes they do that, especially in a detective movie. It would make sense to throw in other characters that you think might play a part, but could just be throwing you off. The other bit of this is it shows that it's a small town, and it shows that this officer in particular isn't well-respected and probably doesn't sleep with a lot of women, so he just peeps in windows because that's what he gets. He's kind of a loser, I think is what they're establishing here. I mean, they kind of 
do that with an entire police force. That I would say 95% of them are all sort of bumbling. Yeah, well, um, let's talk about that in a second, because I think that matters after we meet this next character. Yeah, that's true. We meet Virgil Tibbs, and he's played by Sidney Portier. Virgil has just left his mother's home and is at a train station catching a late night train to Philadelphia. Sam, the cop from earlier, approaches Virgil and arrests him, thinking that he's the murderer. At this point, because I didn't know what was really going on because I didn't read the bio, I was like, oh no, did he actually do it? (laughs) We're kind of unsure what's going to happen, I think. You know, is that kind of how you interpreted it too? I mean, you said your original reaction was he's going to have to clear his name. Exactly, yeah. I wasn't prepared for them... I was preparing the work together, but I didn't realize that Virgil Tibbs was, as we find out in a moment, a police officer himself. Virgil was hauled into the station interrogated by Chief Gillespie, again Rod Steiger. After a few minutes of questioning, it comes out that Virgil is the top homicide detective in Philadelphia. Gillespie phones Virgil's police department for verification, and Virgil's chief offers Virgil's services to Gillespie. Virgil reluctantly agrees. Man, I would not want to be Virgil in this situation, right? He's been harassed. He just wants to go home. He's, it's like 2 or 3 a.m. at this point. His boss threw him under the bus. Yep. This is where I think the dynamic is interesting. So Virgil Tibbs is a black man in the South from Philadelphia. We start to see this in the next couple scenes as well. This is where I think things get flipped. You know, the script gets flipped. Virgil Tibbs, the black man, is the smartest, best dressed, and probably wealthiest person in most of the scenes because he's dealing with these like podunk white idiots. And I feel like that probably wasn't seen in a lot of movies. I think this was atypical for a black man to play a role like this at the time. I read the same thing, that it was very atypical. This was like a a new coming out representing a smart, black, confident. And that's one thing we should say. Virgil is extremely competent uh, and confident. And logical. Uh, he's, that's why he's the detective. That's why he's the best. <laughs> exactly. Chief Gillespie knows this, too. He recognizes this after a time. I think begrudgingly respects him after moments of kind of seeing how he operates and, and how he can be helped in, in solving the murder. Chief Gillespie, he, I think he starts as a racist. At least prejudiced. But he is more interested in solving the crime. I can't tell if he wants to just solve it to solve it or solve it because he wants to actually get justice. I think you initially think he's just going to blame the black man because it's convenient. Once Virgil starts to show him how they can actually solve the crime, because crimes were not solved in this town, they would just pick someone up on the street and harass them until they confessed whether they were guilty or not. And Virgil has a scientific method to all of these things that can find the guilty party. He wants to clear the books, so to speak, close the case, but isn't very good at his job and would frequently do the most convenient thing. Okay, the the murdered man turns out to be a wealthy northern industrialist who was going to build a factory in town, and the factory would, would bring thousands of jobs to the impoverished area, and these are jobs for both white and black people. Uh, something the white towns folks weren't really happy about. So there's a reason for the murder right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some white person to keep the blacks impoverished is willing to kill this white person, which also jeopardizes their job as well. So Virgil examines the body and in the process proves that he is the smartest person in the room easily. Uh, there's a nice quote here where he sort of politely corrects a doctor which I thought was really good. You're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? 
Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs! Take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now! And that is a incredibly famous line in cinema history. Um, it's like top 25 quotes. And the name of the sequel. And the name of the sequel, that's right. And you you uh, apparently took one for the team there and watched it. <laughs> I sure did. Don't recommend it. <laughs> what I was surprised about this scene is showing Virgil examining the body the way he did. It, it felt like that's not something I would have seen on screen until like... Did this kick off that kind of detective procedural type show? I don't know, but I think it greatly affected it. I bet we could draw a pretty straight line between this and Law and Order. I mean, it, it kind of feels like a longer episode of Law and Order. It does. You're absolutely right. There's a couple of scenes you can cut out, and it would be a Law and Order episode, basically. Oh, it's a two-parter. <laughs> it's a two-parter. Uh, that again, that's not a bad thing. I love me some Law and Order, and uh, this movie I also like. But it does feel a little bit like simple for a movie. It is from a 150-page novel. It's it's a very simple plot. Like we're not getting crazy here. From this point on, Tibbs and Gillespie work together to hunt down the killer, and they often disagree about the potential suspects. So let's run through those suspects. First off, Gillespie arrests a young man for the murder, but Tibbs points out that the man couldn't have done it because he's left-handed and the industrialist was killed by a person who's right-handed. Not only this, but the person who was accused had a super tight alibi, this ties in, John, to what we were just talking about. When they captured this man, there's like a 10-minute scene of him running around. You don't know who he is when he first comes on the screen. Could have been completely cut. <laughs> like, get this down to 90 minutes flat. 40, 42 minutes with commercial breaks. <laughs> and what I wanted to note about this character is when we're first introduced to him, we're also introduced to a very, very minor police officer. And his name is Shagbag. And I love that name. This is Shagbag. Got him over here. Uh, I laughed really loud when that came on. And I was like, I'm going to store that name for later. It's probably a popular name in the South and we don't even realize it. I'm, I'm like kind of ribbing the scene where it, it feels longer than it needs to be. It doesn't necessarily feel necessary. But it is well shot. To recap it, it shows a man running across a, a long bridge trying to get to... Turned across the state line so that the police can't continue to chase him. But the camera is very far away and you just see this like picture of the bridge and this little dude just running as fast as he can. You know he's never going to make it. I think it's a camera trick we probably hadn't seen because I think they had some new long lenses which could do a long zoom because they do take you from very far back and zoom in quite a ways so you can actually see the man running from a half mile away. You know, they start zooming in on that bridge. So new technology. New technology always gets you an Oscar. Or very close to it, actually. <laughs> now that we've done so many of these, I'm like, yeah, make something new. You'll probably get nominated. Second perp, John. Dun, dun, dun. Tim's and Gillespie suspect that plantation owner Indicott, a genteel racist and one of the town's most powerful citizens, might be involved in the murder because he opposes the factory. The reason he opposes the factory is because he has cotton fields and hires the black people, and pays them very little to pick the cut. Exploitative. A factory in town would ruin his biz. They visit him. While Tibbs interrogates him, essentially. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say, last night about midnight? Indicott slaps Tibbs. And immediately, Tibbs slaps him back. 
You're lesbian? Yeah. You saw it. Well, I saw it. Well, what are you gonna do about it? I don't know. I'll remember that. There was a time when I could have had you shot. This is another extremely powerful, well-known scene. What's going on here, John? I think it was one of the first few times in a mainstream movie that we saw this. Having a black character strike a white character. Not really done up until this point. This is a new thing and probably a little shocking for the audience at the time. What's delicious about this scene is that Indicott starts crying afterwards. Endicott is cleared. This is actually where, I guess the one other thing to talk about there is Virgil Tibbs is a character. Up until this point, he's using science to deduce a lot of things. And he thinks he sort of has Endicott because he there's some material that was found on the body that's also in Endicott's greenhouse. We see that Tibbs is like, I'm going to get this fat cat. We see that Tibbs is also sometimes just like the local police officers. When he thinks someone has done it, he focuses in on it and gets called out by Gillespie saying, you are just like the rest of us. Final perp is Sam, the police officer from earlier who found the body. Virgil suspects Sam and has him repeat all the actions that he did the night that he found the body. Instead of passing Purdy's house, Sam... Purdy's the naked woman, just to be clear. He takes a different route, indicating that he's lying. But Virgil doesn't know what he's lying about. Virgil does know what he's lying about. That's right. He does know he's lying about. But it is in case that he's willing to lie. Gillespie goes and looks at Sam's bank account and finds that he had a large deposit that mysteriously matches money that was missing from the industrialist's wallet. John, at this point, who do you think did it? You know, at this point, I'm still thinking Endicott. You know, what about you? Same. I was like, I was like, Endicott did it. I don't. I didn't think he was the one who actually pulled the trigger, but he probably paid someone to go do it. It seemed likely. Yeah, whether that was the young man from earlier, whether it was Sam. To be frank, like as soon as they picked up Sam, I was like, there's no way Sam did it. He's not smart enough. Uh, how could someone who found the body also report it? This is going off the rails. <laughs> right after. Sam being interrogated, Virgil and Gillespie are arguing. Lloyd Purdy, the sister Loris's older brother, comes in and tells Virgil and the chief that his 16-year-old sister is pregnant with Sam's baby. Thinking is, is that Sam murdered the industrialist for money to pay for an abortion. It's interesting to hear the story of Dolores. Well, where did this happen? She's like, in the graveyard on top of a tombstone. And I'm like, that's so weird. <laughs> but, but okay. I mean, some people are into that. So Sam doesn't strike me as that kind of person. Sam doesn't strike me as someone who's like, let's go, let's go bang on top of the tombstone. He's not wearing enough black. Uh, here's the question. Have you ever just like hung out at a at a cemetery? Not at night. I have been to a cemetery at night on Halloween. Kind of scary. But anyway, it's a, it's a really weird scene. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It feels like the writers were like trying to shock people. Uh, you know what I mean? I was like, Probably didn't need to go to the cemetery. Could have just done it in the house. Would have been fine. But maybe it's like a 16-year-old's idea of shocking. They were all watching us, John. <laughs> we summoned a devil. Grandma's watching me, yep. Uh, so those are the suspects. I still think it was Indicott at this point, like we said. Tibbs, who's not convinced that it's Sam, decides to pay a visit to a backstreet abortionist. And the rumor reveals that she has been asked to perform a, an abortion that very night. And she cited a very specific amount of money. And then Tibbs puts it together. Dolores arrives for her planned abortion and sees Tibbs. 
She runs away. Tips follows her and runs into Ralph. And that is her boyfriend. He's also the guy who runs the diner, who was making fun of Sam at the beginning of the movie. And it turns out that Ralph is the father of the baby, and he accidentally killed the industrialist in an attempt to get money to pay for the abortion. John, did you see this coming? Nope. I think that guy was just going to mug the guy, say they got jumped, take the money, and, you know, pay for this abortion. I didn't do a good job with this because I, I watched the movie again, and I was trying to figure out, with the clues they gave us, would I know any of these things that are being said? Like, would it be indicated anywhere on screen? Could I tell that first guy was left-handed? Nope. Would I have known many of these things? Not really. So I'm not sure this is that great of a movie where you could solve it by watching it. You know, do you have a feeling about that? So did I think that Purdy did it? Did the film give us enough knowledge to think that Purdy did it? It's close. So what they do with Purdy, it's more visual and audio cues. So at the very beginning of the film, it shows him killing a fly, which I think is supposed to mean that he is willing to kill something. And at the end, when he's confessing, he's doing the same motion. So you're supposed to put that together. There's an audio cue in there as well. The foul owl song. Do you remember that? Uh Yes, I do. Yeah. So it was playing well. It was just him alone. And I think that was supposed to be an indicator that he was not such a good guy. All that being said, John, that's very thin. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I would put that together because like you see him, Jimmy opened the jukebox, put that song on, start dancing. And then he's intentionally messing with Sam, the police officer. Would that be enough for me to think he's a murderer? No, No, I don't know. I I wouldn't have picked up on that. I retrofitted that into it. And and that's a great point because like, I did feel a little let down that the murderer wasn't any of the people that they were considering. It felt sort of out of left field. What the movie wraps up at the same time that Tibbs finds out about Dolores, she runs off. We find out that Ralph is the father. Lloyd Purdy shows up with a gang. A confrontation happens. Ralph shoots Lloyd. And you think that Virgil is going to get killed, but Gillespie arrives and saves the day. Essentially stopping them. He doesn't like save the day. Virgil wrestles the gun away from Ralph. And then Virgil says to the gang, your sister's lying to you. She's actually pregnant by Ralph. And he's like, is that true? They check her purse, find that she has money. It turns out she got it from Ralph. And then they shoot each other. He doesn't save the day. Presence stops them from attacking him because the police officer's there. Okay. And he, I mean, he also grabs the gun. So it's not like he's completely defenseless, but it's... Seven to one. The next scene you see the guy confessing. The final scene is Gillespie thanking Tibbs at the train station and helping Tibbs onto the train. I don't know if you noticed it. It may have been subtle, may not have been subtle. The conductor is helping some white people off the train, but when Tibbs walks up, he disappears. I did not notice that. That's a good catch. And then you have the bigoted police officer assist the black man in the South. That's how the movie ends. And I think they appreciate each other in in some way. I'm pretty sure Virgil's never going back. (laughs) So how does this movie hold up for modern audiences? Honestly, kind of slow. Stopped it several times as I was going through it, just because it was moving too slow for my taste. What was your reaction to the speed of the movie? 
I thought the speed was fine. I thought it was better during my second watch. I actually liked it better on my second watch also. For me, anyway, I start paying attention more to the little interactions between the cast, the microaggressions, the decisions for some of the characters. I think I started to appreciate it more on the second watch as you catch a lot of these little things because you can gloss over a lot of that if you're not paying attention. In terms of speed, I thought it was fine. I actually didn't think it was that slow, but... It does feel dated because I've seen so many police procedurals. I've seen so many of them, not just Law and Order, but basically all the major networks have some type of procedural. So in that sense, it does feel a little dated. This is probably the progenitor of those movies or helped start a lot of that. It does feel very dated. Again, that genre has changed a lot since then. Why is Virgil so magnetic? Is he? I think he is. I think he. I think he's really good in this. I mean, he's a extremely competent, logical officer who. <laughs> I mean, he just knows what he's doing, and I find that magnetic. It's just like these little moments that were like that doesn't seem very smart. If I were Virgil, wouldn't he be like, "I need a gun for sure." That's a good point. He doesn't carry one, but he wasn't on duty when he left. You would think though that he would get one. You would think that as kind of a deputized police officer. I also just think Potier overacts a lot, and I'm not really into that style of things. That's sort of my reaction there. What do you think happens to Gillespie? Like, you don't think you don't think he's running out of town? You think he's protected? So there is a scene where he's talking to someone who seems to work for this northern industrialist and is helping facilitate this factory being built there. It sounds like this guy wants Gillespie to solve the case and may keep him around because it worked out, especially since the factory's still going to come to town now, and that would be the sun setting on Endicott's time. I think he gets run out of town. I mean, if he was elected, he's definitely gone. If he is appointed, there's a more likely chance that he stays. I can't say he was ever good at his job. It was all Virgil. Yeah, I mean, he was better at his job than the other people. That's because he recognized that he wasn't an expert in this. Yeah. I mean, like he has a little bit of self-awareness. Like everyone else was just like, everyone else would shag bag, John. Everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> everyone but shag bag was terrible at their job. He's the one who found the, the crook. <laughs> I mean, it's just so crazy how incompetent they were and they were in charge. I think that's also what they were getting at too. But isn't that kind of true about a lot of places? The people that you don't want in charge are always in charge. <laughs> I, yes. I'm shocked that working with people, I'm like, like, how'd you get here? Literally had someone who was very senior at a previous job who was not not equipped to do the work. He was good at one thing, and that was smoozing the leadership, senior leadership. But he was terrible at everything else, and he just expected everyone else to pick up the slack. I would agree. Uh, I know some people that are like that, too. And nepotism is the answer. It's like they know somebody there, and somehow that got them the job, even though they're grossly unqualified for the position they're in. God, we got to make some neps and tunes, man. We got to <laughs> got to find someone who has a really good job and just like hire me for way more than I'm worth and I will do half the work of someone who's qualified. And <laughs> really piss off everyone I work with because they are spending more time managing me than any of the projects they're working on. <laughs> man, it would have been so good to work in the 60s, <laughs> 50s. Yeah, who even knows what you're doing? You're like I'm writing a letter. <laughs> on my typewriter like double spaces after a period leave me alone yeah i'm checking the letter my secretary wrote for me before it gives out 
Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about. What did you think of the music, Dave? I am not a fan of the blues. Uh, nothing mm-hmm. wrong against it. If you like it, good. I'm glad you like it. Uh, it's really not my jam. There are some odd choices songs in here that I couldn't tell if they were parody songs or not. The Foul Owl. So some of those things, they couldn't get the rights to some of the songs they wanted because the movie had such a shoestring budget. But they did have Quincy Jones mm-hmm. scoring the film. And the title track, which Quincy Jones wrote, was performed by Ray Charles. That's mm-hmm. called In the Heat of the Night. The main reason I was asking this, just what you thought more generally, it was an introduction to mainstream white audiences for jazz and blues music. Because... Huh. It had not really been a soundtrack to a movie, at least a mainstream movie previously. So this was like the first major Hollywood movie to have a soundtrack like this. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. It seems like you noticed it a little bit. I think I noticed it in some places too. Yeah, I noticed it, but I noticed the really weird country songs, like when a bow-legged Clyde and a knock-kneed Polly. And I was like, what is this song? <laughs> is this what? It's like, why is this here? And I guess it's here to make Sam look like a doofus. Yes. I think it's just establishing some of the townsfolk and the scenes within the town, too. Sequels. I wasn't brave enough to watch them. How about you? There's two sequels. I watched the first one. It's on Amazon Prime. It's called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Dave, let me just ask you, if you were to guess at what the sequel is like, what would you say? If you were just to like pick a setting for it or what happens to Mr. Tibbs? Probably in the South again. Steiger probably wouldn't be in it. Probably be another murder. It feels like sort of a retread of the first. Am I am I anywhere close? Um, he's still a detective. Oh, he's still a detective. Okay. <laughs> he's married, living in San Francisco, solving. There's like a local preacher who's a white man who gets in trouble, and then there's like these weird interludes with him interacting with his misbehaving son. <laughs> What? Who's like 10 years old. I think it's a hot pile of garbage. And then there's a third one, which I'm never going to watch. So, And also, this movie feels like a exploitation film in many ways. The budget had to have been like $200,000 because they are using the same sets for multiple different rooms, just like rearranging furniture a little bit. Which sort of works because they're in an apartment building and you could just say like all the units are the same, but it just looks so cheap and it's not particularly good. Oh, that's unfortunate. I did vaguely know that they weren't well received, that the drop off was steep. So I wasn't even going to try. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So here's the question. Here's the real question for this podcast. Why did this movie win Best Picture? Well, getting back to that Bobby Kennedy quote, I think... It was timing, and I think this movie was important for the time because it showed an intelligent black lead, which I don't think we had gotten a lot of up until this point. Him even getting along with racists in the South. I I think that's what they were trying to do, is just show a different side of how people could be portrayed in movies. And I think that really resonated at the time. It's also interesting, the same year, another movie that was well-received was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I also think was a very good movie and maybe also very of its time and very good for the time, just to get people thinking and talking about these things. Like, why why can't we be in a relationship with someone of another race? Like, what would people say? Like, why do we not do this? They are just important things that needed to be talked about. And that's why I think this movie won. 
I guess there's some little technical things and maybe the music helps popularize some things that were kind of on the fringe of society a little bit. That's sort of my opinion. What about you, Dave? I think you hit the nail on the head. Just to condense what you were saying, I think it's theme and timing. They had a resonant theme and released at the right time. It was also, I think, well acted. I know we disagree about that. It's just a really solid movie that had a political topic that was important at that point and is important now. I would add to everything that you said, there's also a little bit of story behind it. Oscar voters love narrative. And the narrative of City Portier not wanting to go to the South, but then going to the South, probably boosted it a little bit because it's a good story to latch onto. Dave, what do you say? I think it's a winner. And before you answer, John, can I can I say that I I don't know what you're going to pick here. I, I think you're waffling. So I do not think it's a winner. Wow, we disagree. Let, I wouldn't go as far to say it's a wiener, but one of the things we talked about last time is, would I recommend this movie to somebody? The answer is no, I would not. So it is not a winner in my book. There we have it. Would you recommend any of the Best Picture nominees? From this year? Yes. I actually think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a better movie. Is more about a discussion kind of thing. And it's set up kind of like a play, which maybe it was a play. I don't know. I, I feel like that one was a little bit better. But ultimately this year, nothing really did it for me. Hmm. It's interesting that you really don't like Bonnie and Clyde. Is that true? Yeah, I don't really like... Um, Warren Betty. But you but you, you don't like the story. I, just, I, I find them to be long, boring character studies of people that don't need movies written about them after watching Reds and some of his other films, I'm just like, I don't really care about Warren Beatty's opinion on things. Yeah, like I said, I think it's a winner. I think I would recommend people watch this. I enjoyed it. I think knowing the context of everything around it would help you appreciate this film more. I think it's probably mostly for film nerds. That's shocking. I I, I kind of felt you were wobbling, but I was a little shocked that you went uh, wiener on this. I didn't say that, Dave. Now you're putting wieners in my mouth. So That's normal. What I said was, it's not a winner. I wouldn't go as far to call it a winner, but it's not a movie I would recommend. To well, the, it's a it's binary. You have to pick one. Do it, you, Dave? I just did. Yeah, that's the whole reason you we did. have this, this category. Well, you're a very binary person, Dave. No, this that's the whole reason of having the category. It's a winner or a wiener. It's not a it's not a maybe. That's boring. Is it a winner or a wiener, John? Well, in that case, it would be a wiener. There you go. That's was that hard. Put that wiener right in your mouth. <laughs> Reiterating what I was saying, I don't think most people need to see this movie because, well, a lot of other things have been done since then. I guess you could say the historical context of the film is important. I just don't find it to be that interesting. I find it to be very long. I guess it's an hour 40 minutes. It just it just felt long. Yeah, it's nowhere near as long as Dr. Doolittle, John. That movie's like three hours. It's so bad. <laughs> I was so mad. My eyes were hurting. Like these songs kept coming on and I was like, shut up. I don't care. I don't care about you being a vegetarian. Anyway, my favorite segment, John, poor name. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Sure. So I'm going to say Night Heat, The Graveyard Gangbang. Ooh, Graveyard Gangbang. It's a callback. Yeah, that's how you raise zombies. <laughs> what do you got? What do you got, Dave? Race relations. <laughs> that's a pretty good one, too. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Next up is our pick. I'm going to throw one out here and let me know what you feel. Judge Dredd versus Dredd. Alternatively, we could do Sneakers versus Hackers. 
thoughts? <laughs> so I like the movie Dread a lot, and it sounds like you have not seen that before. If I have, I can't remember it. I think it's an underrated action movie. So what are you leaning? I say we do Dread because I don't think you've seen either one. I mean, if I have, I don't remember them at all. And I, I'm pretty certain that I confuse Judge Dread with Demolition Man on a regular basis. So it'd be helpful. What I like about the pick of Judge Dread versus Dread is that I think it's a Stallone cheesy movie versus what I believe to be is a very good underrated action movie. <laughs> so that's cool. I will say, though, that one day we are going to get sneakers on here somehow. Maybe not this year. <laughs> you may sneak it on there for us. I don't know how. You have to watch the episode, too. I can't just be like, <laughs> like we're talking about sneakers today. <laughs> one day, Dave. One okay. day. And hackers. So you want to do Dread versus Dread. I'm interested to see what other people think about these movies also. Yeah. Do we have any homework for our audience? Do we need to read like any comics? Like, Are you familiar with the comics? Because I'm not. 2000 AD, I believe, is the comic series. I've tried to read some of them. It wasn't my jam. So the the comics, I don't really care about. Okay. Uh, yeah, I haven't read any of it. I vaguely know who Dread, Judge Dredd is. He says, I am the law. That's, that's what I got. <laughs> that's all I have. Maybe I'll read that first volume if I can find it. So if you like our podcast, please rate and review us. You can contact us at david at awardmeters.com or at john at awardmeters.com. Or you can follow us on Instagram where we post movie reviews and memes. Did I miss anything? Are you going to talk about shaving your balls, Dave? Well, we we did have a company reach out to us uh, offering to sponsor our podcast. And it is a um, ball shaving company. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a grooming pro- It's a hair trimmer yeah but it's it's a ball shaving company like they're <laughs> they're pretty shaving. they're pretty clear like don't nick your balls use our trimmer <laughs> uh i i mean like if they offer us enough money i suppose <laughs> the advantage of having jobs and not being podcasters full times mean we don't have to do things like that <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah that's very true we don't have to take the ball shaving <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah this is a lot of fun uh thanks for joining us Thanks, guys. All you little birds better lock up tight. Cause there's a pow-wow on the prowl tonight. Hey, little lark, get 